Hello and welcome back to Talking Sense, the podcast, the podcast version of Talking Sense Interdisciplinary Research Group from the academic year 2018-19 held at the Ashmolean Museum. In the first episode, we discussed the aims and goals of the project, which was to explore the role of the senses in art in the museum through the permanent collection. In the second episode, Christy and I discussed the workshop days. In the following few episodes, we'll be presenting the podcast recordings of the gallery talks, the culmination of our year of research. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Alexis Gorby, a DPhil candidate in the Department of Archaeology. Her talk partner is Dr. Carrie Ryan, who works in the Department of Anthropology. The title of their talk was Making Sense of Death. Death is universal, but how cultures across time and space understand and experience death is not. Carrie and Alexis explore how ancient and contemporary cultures use the senses to make sense of death. Alexis will be talking about funerary glass in sarcophagi. Hi, I'm Alexis Gorby. I'm a DPhil student in classical archaeology. I'm writing my dissertation on late antique sarcophagi, which are stone coffins made during the end of the Roman Empire. I'm focusing on sarcophagi and their burial context and how an audience would have experienced and understood the objects. And part of that experience is, of course, the senses. So just as Carrie discussed in her podcast, I'm going to talk about how we need all the senses and context to make meaning of the dead but we're going to travel back in time and talk about the museum's collection of late antique gold glass. During late antiquity, which is the period associated with the end of the Roman Empire and dates roughly to the 4th through 6th century CE or AD, the city of Rome had a vast network of underground burials called the catacombs. It is in the Roman catacombs where most of the gold glass you see before you was found. These underground cemeteries were outside of Rome's city walls and were dug out of the city's tuff, which is a soft, porous, volcanic stone. The catacombs were richly decorated with stone sarcophagi, as well as frescoes or wall paintings, carved epitaphs, such as the ones you can see in the gallery next to the gold glass, as well as small works of art, like the gold glass. So the catacombs were used by many religious faiths of the period, and images associated with Judaism, Christianity, and Roman religions can be found in various examples of the gold glass in the gallery. For example, there is a gold glass with a menorah, one with a portrait of Christ in the center surrounded by various saints, as well as one depicting Hercules. And if you're in the gallery, these are number 2, 14, and 3. So while many of the Christian catacombs had churches above them and also contained the tombs of saints, this did not necessarily mean that the church was responsible for burials. Rather, it was the family who was mainly responsible for burying and taking care of the dead. This is in part why so-called pagan funerary customs, traditions, and ways of remembering the dead continued from the Roman period into the late antique period. These customs and traditions included lots of feasting. On the day of burial, a funeral feast was held. More feasts were held on the ninth day after the burial to mark the end of the mourning period, as well as on the anniversary of the death. Sometimes the feast could take place inside small rooms of the catacombs or at a house nearby that served as a banqueting hall. They also could take place outside around the catacombs. During these banquets, family and friends would return to the grave of the person they were celebrating to remember and honor them. But these are not necessarily tame or somber occasions. The literature of the period often remarks on how rowdy and rambunctious these feasts could get. So what does this have to do with the case of gold glass, you may be wondering. 
Much of the gold glass here were once part of larger vessels used for eating and drinking during these funerary banquets. They date mainly to the 4th century, and how they were made is that first the base of the dish was blown either in a circle or oval, and a layer of gold glass was then added. Then the artisan carved the image and scratched out the remaining gold leaf to create the design. Sometimes additional colored enamel paint was added to the gold leaf to add detail to the image. If you're in the gallery, you can see examples that have red and green paint added to the gold, and these are number 4 and 14. Once the image was finalized, a second layer of molten glass was applied on top and blown to create the vessel's shape. The gold glass came in a range of shapes and could either be the base of chalices for drinking or more shallow bowls and cups that held food. What exactly was eaten and drunk during these meals is a matter of debate, but the visual, textual, and archaeological sources suggest that wine, fish, bread, fowl, beef, and beans were all likely part of the meal when dining with the dead. The gold glass, with their function to hold food and drink during funeral banquets, along with their inscriptions and images, provide a strong and clear link between feasting, drinking, and remembering the dead. Moreover, these memories of the feast, the tastes, the smells, the emotions would have been linked to the gold glass as objects. Once the feasting was over, the gold glass vessel was smashed or cut. The decorated base with the design was then taken and sealed in the plaster covering the tomb. Some of the gold glass has been found with their jagged, broken edges turned inwards, while others had their edges facing outward. This turning of the gold glass to the inside, where the deceased was, has led some scholars to argue that the objects function as gifts to the deceased and not only as markers for their tombs. Whether they were primarily gifts for the dead or primarily served as tomb markers, the gold glass was seen by visitors to the grave. So what did these visitors see and experience when they were inside the catacombs? They would have had a very different experience of these objects than what we have today. Today, they're behind the glass in the museum, and we mostly use our sense of sight to understand the objects. We primarily look at them for their iconography, or in other words, what biblical images or saints or other images are being depicted. But let's imagine we are visiting the grave of a loved one in the catacombs to better understand how a Roman viewer would have seen and experienced the gold glass. So you're in 4th century Rome, and you leave the densely built city of Rome with its hustle and bustle and walk along one of the main roads leading out of the city like the Via Appia. As you go further and further from the city, the landscape begins to change, and you begin to be surrounded by death. The mausoleums, tombs, and grave markers of previous centuries line the road. Some of these monuments had portraits of the deceased or inscriptions that addressed you as you passed by, imploring you to remember the person buried within. You then arrive to the catacombs entrance. You first have to descend the staircase to enter the underground burial site. Through your sense of thermoreception, which is the body's sense of temperature, you immediately experience the change in temperature from the outside world. The temperature inside the catacombs is fairly constant, ranging from 15 to 17 degrees Celsius. This would have been in marked contrast to the hot Roman summer or even to the mild, cold winters of Rome. To find the tomb, you must walk through a maze of corridors. The exact structure of each catacomb was different, but for the most part, they had one main gallery or corridor with smaller corridors and rooms branching off from this central access. Some of the catacombs were very large, with the main gallery going on for over 150 meters, with up to 23 galleries branching off from the central access. So navigating the space and finding the tomb was no easy task. 
The galleries could be narrow and tall and were lined with rows and rows of tombs up and down the walls. The occasional skylight and oil lamps were the only light in the dark galleries. What it would have been like to navigate this dark maze of tombs is described by Jerome, a Christian scholar who later became a saint and who lived from roughly 350 to 420 AD. Jerome tells the story of how as a student in Rome, he would go to the catacombs on Sundays to visit the tombs of the martyrs. He describes the experience as, quote, here and there, a ray of light, filtering down as in a funnel, relieves the horror of the darkness. But again, cautiously moving forward, the impenetrable night engulfed me, and I was reminded of the words of Virgil. Everywhere dread fills the soul, the very silence dismays. This evocative description of the all-enveloping silence and darkness, punctuated by the occasional skylight, gives us a sense of what it was like to be in the catacombs. But what Jerome does not comment on is the smell of the catacombs. As you were looking for the grave in the cool darkness, you would have noticed a range of smells. Along the walls, vases holding incense like the psalm perfumed the air. This smell was coupled with the smell of burning oil from the lamps. Gifts for the dead, such as flowers, bread soaked in wine, and sweet-smelling oils further scented the catacombs. So, with little light and hundreds or even thousands of tombs surrounding you in the corridors, how could you have recognized the one you were looking for? In addition to gold glass, other tomb markers like rings, bracelets, toys, coins, other glass vessels, marble epitaphs, shells, oil lamps, as well as paintings were used to individualize the graves and help people recognize the tomb they were looking for. Finally, you come to the tomb of your loved one, and the flickering of the oil lamp's light reflects off the gold glass's surface, helping you identify that this is the right grave. Seeing the gold glass reminded you of the funeral feast and the taste and smells of the banquet, as well as the speeches given in honor of the deceased. You might also be staring at a portrait of your loved one in the center of the gold glass, like in number nine if you're standing in the gallery. This further would have brought back a flood of memories. The gold glass's associations with food and drink, as well as their ability to conjure memories of the funeral orations and memories of the deceased, allowed you to actively commemorate and remember the dead. The temperature, light, smells, and architecture of the catacombs all created a distinct sensorial experience and one that was associated with death. The experience of the space created a sensory environment that reframed the mindset of the viewer to go from the outside world to that of the catacombs in death. The sensory landscape is how you would have approached and interacted with one of these pieces of gold glass. Then the gold glass itself, with its ability to activate memories of the dead and its link to the sense of taste and smell through feasting, further linked the commemoration of the deceased to a sensorial experience. As we can see, the senses played a key role in marking the funerary world and in constructing the way the Romans honored the deceased in the catacombs. In other words, the senses helped a Roman viewer make sense of death. further reading about this podcast and all of the podcasts in this series, please see the attached bibliographies in the show notes. Music for the show was by David Hillowitz, Moment of Truth piano version, provided by freemusicarchive.org. This podcast was presented, edited and produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale. And me, Johnny Lawrence. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.